Let's go, Lofa Polisak, coming at you, people. Mike Pickering here with our good friend, Gregory Day, a writer, director, bookseller, and the voice behind Hipsville AD. You know that fanatical sect of God of subcultures who has them fervent ramblings of all breeds of cinematic pleasures. How are we doing out there, Gregory Day? Oh, man, I am very excited to be here today. How are you? Oh, most excellent, most excellent. I'm still I'm still getting back into my cozy little closet from the live show, and it's weird recording with... You're the first person I've recorded with since recording with people in person so it's like mm. it's a little interesting weird now it's like i don't mm-hmm. get to see you but it's like oh yeah. get back into this you know Hell but what yeah. are we here to what are we what are we talking about today what you got for us yeah it's something i'm very excited about uh we you know i bring it up a lot on this show and we're talking about uh hong kong cinema today so today's going to be a list of an introductory list of hong kong cinema Dude, I like this one a lot. And you're right, you do talk about it a lot. And I'm going to ask you about yeah. that. So yeah, it's towards the end of the show. But uh, let's just dive into it, my friend. What do you got coming in at number 10? Yeah, yeah. Uh, quick preference, this list is going to end at a certain time. So we're going to get, uh, so don't look for anything super um, relevant uh, here on this list. So but we'll get into that later. Uh, but we're going to start in the 1960s and work our way uh, into a much more modern um, era here across this list. So we're starting in 1966 with Come Drink With Me. Uh, it's a Shaw Brothers classic, uh, arguably one of the biggest films to kind of like launch the, the action craze of Hong Kong cinema. Uh, this is a film that uh, is, is of the wuxia variety of action, which is, if you're not familiar with that, it's the more uh, fantasy-driven um, kung fu movie with uh, you know people jumping and leaping far, wire work. You know, uh, sometimes it has fantasy elements, but this one is just more involved with the the uh, exaggerated fight scenes leaping from table to table or through the you know across great distances or so forth um but this is a great story of a, of a you know of a woman who is uh track, trying to track down uh, a, a prince who's been kidnapped by these by these uh terrorists and she's disguised as a man which is something that um, happens quite a lot in uh, period pieces in hong kong cinema um and this is she's out here uh, you know tracking him down and she's she just gets into a bunch of different uh, scuffles with these terrorists uh and she befriends this drunk this drunkard who's kind of hanging around this tavern and he, we learn that he is a disgraced monk and he comes out of hiding once his abbot from his temple joins the uh, the villains of the story and so it's a great action film uh it's got a lot you know it feels like a uh you know, a great MGM musical, except for without the music pieces. It's just these great uh, choreographed fight scenes. So yeah, this is uh, Come Drink With Me from 1966. is a great uh, launching point to get into Hong Kong cinema. And you got me with this one. I haven't seen it, I'll tell you that. But mm-hmm. what you were talking about with the style of it and launching the style with all the, the wire working and the great special effects and like the, the fantasy of what's possible with martial arts and Kung Fu. Would you say this is like, the beginnings of where you get like like i think more modern audience would know at least in the u.s um crouching tiger hidden dragon for instance does that have like its roots here yeah i would say yeah i mean i think there were there this wuxia style goes all the way back to literature in chinese culture but i think this is like the first massive hit uh film wise uh that takes that takes that genre and puts it on screen um but yeah, I think you could see the from this film to now, you could see uh, everything from Crouchy Tiger, Hidden Dragon to Hero and many of those kinds of films. Um, this is like ground zero for that uh, taking place in cinema. Yeah, I definitely I definitely got the feel of that. But also with the name, you know, come drink with me, I automatically thought of Drunken Master. Um, oh, yeah. And I was like, really? I was like, this is an interesting title for me because it's kind of suggestive. And it mm-hmm. made me wonder, you know, translations from Chinese to English. 
aren't necessarily always perfect. And oh. sometimes like in marketing in the US, maybe you translate the title in a more suggestive way. Because at this time, 1966, communist China was really hardcore and Mao Zedong was like in power. And I'm curious, like, would a title like this would have would have it flown? Or is the is the title in Chinese actually a mm -hmm. little bit different than this? I don't know. Um, yeah, I'd be interested. Yeah, I don't know either. But I do know, like, it's not always a one to one when a film gets released in English. The title isn't always one to one. Um, there's a there's a film on here we'll talk about later. I could give you a better example of the translation, uh, or not even translation, but just how it's changed uh, once it be, once it goes to English. But yeah, it's it's not common that, or it is I would say a common occurrence that they just come up with different English titles for films um, outside of China. And just a real quick behind the scenes, and then we'll cut to your number nine. But um, so, it, uh, for instance, a Chinese production company makes this film. Does a U.S. company like buy the rights to it and then they're able to change the name in order to play it in the U.S.? Or do they are they just like leasing it or do you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess there could be a few things. Yeah, there's definitely uh, deals to get released in different markets. Um, but sometimes it's sometimes it is like if a film doesn't quite um, translate well from one to one. So, you know, you get a film like a, a great film like Hapkido, which is it's named after, you know, the. Um, the martial arts featured in the film but then once it comes to america the american audience the american distributors want to put it in like grindhouses and exploitation exploitation cinemas and so they change it to something like um you know lady kung fu or something like that so it has a, a much more appealing uh title to the audience uh, that they're you. hoping to, to bring in yeah and that, that that was what i was really getting at is like so a u.s distribution company can have mm -hmm. like some say in changing the names okay Absolutely, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Mm -hmm. all right well what you got for number nine for us yeah number nine we're uh, hitting into the 70s here and we have fist of fury from 1972 it's the film that made bruce lee uh, a movie star uh he had been bouncing around doing a, a few things he had been in the in the states in the in the late 60s doing the green hornet tv show but he could never quite make it as a movie star in america and so he went back to hong kong and he makes Fist of Fury, and he kind of starts to revolutionize the the uh, kung fu film. This is the this is his first film. It's it's very famous for um, him fighting, you know, a dozen guys in a in a uh, dojo. And of course, it's got that really great slow motion, you know, hand pose at the end of the film that made him, you know, right, right, the the, the poster idol of of kung of uh, kung fu cinema around the world. I mean, this is this isn't him as big as he is like when you get to um into the dragon but this is like where we start with with him really as a movie star um and yeah this is like a film that kind of breaks the mold of like stagey um shaw brothers kind of stuff like to, just for context like shaw brothers is a really big movie studio in hong kong like uh your Warner brothers or mgms here in america um and they have, they're mostly known for these like stagey costume period Kung Fu movies. But when Bruce Lee hits the scene, it's like a modern, you know, it's more, it's set more in the modern times. He's got more of a swagger and an attitude, um, even though he does pay, you know, homage to things that come before him and he's very philosophical, but there is something more of an attitude to his persona on screen that had come before him, which made him, uh, you know, very quickly an international star once he was able to break out here. So uh, yeah, this is a great flick. And uh, if you haven't seen this one, I highly recommend it because it's, you know, it's one of the most important Kung Fu films that, that ever be released. I couldn't agree with you more. And this one, I, I, of course, I've seen, I've seen many times over the years. 
And I think it's more than even just like an important Kung Fu film. I mean, being the film that Bruce Lee breaks out on, but I think Bruce Lee as an individual helps break out Asian films into a U.S. market. Like, I think it's Bruce Lee as an individual who opens up the U.S. just viewer. I'm not even talking about Hollywood or movie producers, but I'm talking about like you, me, Mm -hmm. and everyone listening out there, like, he introduces us as human beings to cinema that is made outside of the US and he captivates us. And we're just like, what is this Bruce Lee thing? Um, And, you know, after that, suddenly we start getting introduced to not just films from Hong Kong, but inevitably films from South Korea, films from India, from, you know, from all over the place. Like I think our introduction to international cinema in many ways starts with Bruce Lee. I mean, would you say, is there someone else you would, you would say that was a bigger part than him? Uh, I mean, not for, not entirely like international cinema, but for Chinese cinema, definitely. I think prior to this in the fifties and sixties, we did get, there's the importing of Japanese cinema um, that did really well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff. However, I would say that Chinese cinema was something that wasn't really breaking into the American market, you know, whether it was, um, because of our different political systems, but Hong Kong wasn't part of that political system. So um, it's really- And at the time, yeah, Hong Kong yeah. was part of the UK's colony. Right, yeah. And so at this at this point, I think it, for Chinese cinema, um, because I don't think, you know, Chinese cinema doesn't really been, or Hong Kong cinema hasn't, hadn't really had those great art house international smashes. They're not winning awards at film festivals, you know, and all that kind of stuff. They don't have these revered masters of cinema. Um, their culture is a little more, you know, into the entertainment and and um, massively producing stuff for Hong Kong, who are who are more moviegoers than we're television watchers. Um, and so, when we get a film like this and it becomes an international success, yes, it absolutely did like blow the doors open for the importing of Chinese cinema. And just imagine, like as as huge of an icon even today that Bruce Lee is, he died so young. Like, wasn't he around like 34-ish or something like that? Something like know? that, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Imagine, like, at the age that he was, how he revolutionized international film for us or, or HK cinema and us seeing it. What if he would have lived to, like, 60 or 70 or, or you know, like, how much more would have happened? Um, I don't know. It's just crazy to think about it, how, yeah. how strong of an effect he had on us. And yet he died at such a young age if he would have lived yeah. on. Yeah, he didn't even make it out of the 70s. Yeah. Right, right. But as we'll talk about, maybe maybe his legacy lived on. And we'll talk about Mm -hmm. that in another film you have coming up. But let's go to your number eight. What do you got for number eight? Yeah, number eight is uh, Eight Diagram Pole Fighter from 1984. Uh, This is another Shaw Brothers production. Um, But this is what I was talking about with Shaw Brothers making these great period pieces. Um, This one is spectacular. This starts Gordon Liu, who, if you don't know who that is, he was in the Kill Bill films, played Pai Mei in part two. Um, But he was one of the big Kung Fu stars uh, for the Shaw Brothers studio. And this is like a great uh, emotional drama mixed with uh, a Kung Fu film. It's about a brother, uh, or it's about a royal family who gets slaughtered by uh, an army uh, because they're betrayed by one of their advisors. And he's the only surviving brother. And so he has to go to a, he goes to a, uh, a temple and trains until he can feel comfortable coming back and 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 uh, you know honoring his family by defeating the bad guys the, the other clan and so um it's very emotional uh this guy's journey from being kind of a spoiled 
uh, soldier on his father's army to going through this humble experience in the temple and coming back and and righting the wrongs. And um, it's uh, directed by uh, Lao Kar Lung, who is one of the, if not the greatest, like action, you know, choreographer, um, director that ever lived. Uh, he did uh, the Legend of Drunken Master, the sequel there, and he's done. He did, um, um, you know. The Third Six Chambers of Shaolin, and so he's just a really famous filmmaker. But this is his masterpiece, and again, like the first, the uh, Come Drink with Me. This is a film that's that's uh, hugely influential on on kung fu cinema, but also like you, you know you can see like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, how it has such an emotional core, um, and the, and it bounces that really well with action. This is where that kind of uh, storytelling comes from. I'm glad that you mentioned Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon again, and I'm even going to bring up uh, one that you said earlier as well, uh, Hero, um, a Jet Li film, because I hadn't seen this one before, but one thing that immediately caught me was the cinematography and the vibrant colors in oh, yes. this film. And and like Crouching Tiger, but even Hero, more than that, mm -hmm. they just they use such these contrasting colors and not just like having a lot of color in a film but having deep, vibrant versions of the colors on film that, that make the film kind of look otherworldly in and of itself, just because like, you know, if you think about like the US Western or even like cop films in the eighties or action films in the eighties and movements for the nineties, like, yeah, they had color, but US film to me, I don't think of as having like vibrant colors that really catch you and that are really flashy. Right. But this film, without a doubt, I was like, wow, look at the colors and it just draws you in. And it, I don't know, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, this is a spectacular movie. Uh, if you really love period piece cinema or if you love Hong Kong movies or if you love uh, martial arts films, this is a, a must see for anybody. I love all of those things, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a must see. All right. Yes, yes. All right. What you got for number seven? Yeah, number seven. Uh, we're talking about Police Story from 1985, the movie that made Jackie Chan like a huge star. Uh, he was already famous, um, but before this film, a lot of his films were dealing with him in the shadow of Bruce Lee. Um, he did make some really great. Um, you know, action comedies, which was like uh, Drunken Master and and uh, Snake and Eagle Shadow, things like that. But it's this film from 1985 where he takes his brand of kung fu movies into the modern era. So where Bruce Lee was kind of uh, infusing some things into Fist of Fury to modernize the techniques and the filmmaking of a, of a martial arts film. This movie is literally set in the 80s as opposed to being um, a production of the 80s, but set in some sort of um, you know, period setting. So uh, this is, it, it's a hard film to actually describe because it's just Jackie Chan who's trying to stop a drug ring. But the way his films are structured is there's action scene and then there's the comedy bit and him kind of getting into these, these screwball um, scenarios. But what it's really famous for is the innovations of action. And so we have, um, you know, it opens with a stellar chase scene um, that destroys a shanty town and it's got uh, probably more broken glass than any other film uh, in its finale, it's a fight scene that, that sprawls through a mall, and Jackie does a great big stunt at the end, and uh, it kind of set the template for every Jackie film after that, to where he would do a huge stunt in the film um, versus just showing off great fighting skills. And so, uh, this is a great picture. It's you know, this is another one that just changed changed the game um, for action cinema as well as Hong Kong cinema. And so, 
um, this is a huge turning point for the market itself. I couldn't agree more. And, and to connect back to our earlier conversation, I think in many ways, Jackie Chan is the continuation of the legacy of Bruce Lee. Um, but in a, in a different way, I like that you said, you know, you talked about comedy because that's exactly what I was going to talk about too. The fact that Jackie Chan likes to bring comedy into his Kung Fu and it's set in a modern era. Mm -hmm. Like there's one, one part in the trailer. I haven't seen this one, but I've seen a lot of his other ones, but there's one part in this trailer where he's like, hanging from a double-decker bus and he starts to like try and try to run up the side of the <laughs> bus you know and mm -hmm. it's just like like and Jackie Chan's even said I've seen interviews with him you know he loves to use props in his kung fu as kind of like a comedy bit mm -hmm. um like whether it's like doing kung fu with an umbrella and you know using the opening and closing of the umbrella to like do defense and attack and stuff like that and I think it's just amazing and I cannot think of anyone else besides him Granted, my my knowledge of HK cinema and, and just Chinese Kung Fu cinema is extremely limited, but I can't think of anyone else who does Kung Fu comedy, you know, that other than Jackie Chan. And, mm -hmm. and I kind of want to ask you that. Um, so to an American audience, it was, um, what was it, Rush Hour with Chris Tucker that really introduces Jackie Chan and his mm -hmm. Kung Fu comedy to, to the U.S., is it police story that really introduces his Kung Fu comedy? And is that like a Jackie Chan trope or is there actually like a long line of other Kung Fu artists who also bring in comedy? Do you know? No, there wasn't. Jackie really pioneered that. Um, but it wasn't police story that he introduced the mix of it. it police story is really where he really revolutionizes okay. the, bringing things into the modern world. And then there was a, from this point on, just a ton of Kung Fu films set in urban uh, settings as opposed to like you, you could see you know the older um, kung fu films which were period pieces or they were set in rural china those kind of things uh, but his films like uh, the original drunken master from the late 70s is really what i was just yeah. thinking about that too yeah. yeah yeah there was a lot of comedy in that one yeah yeah so those are the films where he really starts to um innovate that comedy style that he that he has but i mean he made so many films before that to where producers wanted him to be uh, Bruce Lee and Jackie, you know, he just didn't feel like he was that person. You know, he did, he wasn't Bruce Lee and, you know, no one else really was. And so he, he was right. Doing who, who else would have been? <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, this is where, um, you know, he had been doing it for, for a while, but this is like, you know, where things really take off, um, in a modern context, but, um, yeah, I mean, he also collaborated with, uh, Sammo Hung a lot. Sammo Hung is also another great, uh, Hong Kong actor and director who's done a lot of comedy with his, um, in his kung fu films, and they're kind of they kind they kind of have parallel careers, and then of course post uh, Jackie, uh, you get Stephen Chow, who did like Shao, uh, Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle, um, who definitely take from Jackie and Sammo's comedy styles. Oh, Kung Fu Hustle! I haven't seen that movie in forever. <laughs> I actually <laughs> own two copies of it on DVD. Um, God, I haven't even thought about that one in a long time. <laughs> But those those films definitely seem to contrast your next pick quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Tell us what you got for number yeah, six. Big time. Yeah. Number six had to bring it in here because we got to do one horror pick. Of course um, you did. Yeah. This is uh, a horror action adventure masterpiece called The Seventh Curse from 1986. Um, this is a film that is a ripoff of 
the Indiana Jones films, but it's like Indiana Jones. I got by... that that vibe. <laughs> yeah, it's like Indiana Jones by way of Evil Dead. Um, but it, oh, it, that's a weird kinda, reference. Yeah, <laughs> just kind of mix matches a whole bunch of stuff going on in the film. It's about a a professor who saves this woman from being sacrificed in this temple, uh, and he gets cursed by this uh, black magic shaman. Um, but then about a year later, uh, the curse comes calling, and he's and he's it's going to kill him if he doesn't go back and try to get the the shaman to reverse. And so, um, it's got all manners of re- weird and wild stuff. Once they get into the adventure part of it, trying to track down the shaman in the jungles of Thai, of Thailand, but it's got like these you know kung fu skeletons and flying demon babies, and it's got some slimy transforming demon monsters, and it's got a bazooka wielding Chow Yun Fat in it. And it's just a hell of a ride. It's not that scary, but it's it's um, it's a goopy, fun roller coaster of a movie. Yeah, I, I haven't seen this one, and you're you're not surprised at all. <laughs> but but oh, I no. do have a couple questions about it. So mm-hmm. like, two questions really, and one's about Chow Young Fat, and the other's about yeah. HK horror in general. Mm-hmm. Was Chow Young Fat like? Does he really do any other horror besides this one, or was this one kind of like an oddball film for him to do? I honestly think this is an oddball film for him to do because okay. um, I've seen quite a few of his films and I can't think of another horror film that he is in. Um, but for That's context, kind of what I thought too, yeah. Yeah, for context, um, he was making like 12 movies a year when during God. the 80s. Yeah, he was never off. Like he was, and sometimes we were shooting them simultaneously. So he's not the star of this movie. He only has like maybe three or four scenes in it. Um but yeah, for context, like the how hardworking gotcha. a lot of these guys were. Um, so yeah, you just I don't I you know maybe it just didn't work out where he was in more horror films. But this is this is a hell of a one to be in if he only made one of them. <laughs> and my other question was, how often did horror come up in the HK movement? Was it a big thing or not? No, no, it's not a big thing. Uh, I wanted to feature this one here because there is not a lot of horror films actually um from the hong kong tradition there's there are a good handful of them uh the boxer's omen being another one um that we've discussed on this uh podcast right right but um yeah it was for some reason um and i don't know why but i've from what i've read and 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 heard in interviews that it just wasn't a bankable genre for hong kong's um audiences and especially when it gets into like creature effects they didn't really have the money to compete with the americans and so if american film opened like the thing or something like that they had these really great polished visual effects once the once the hong kong version came out people kind of scoffed at them because they were you know cheesy or not or limited in in ways um so yeah for some reason it just it just never took off with there if you're like into some of the most wild horror films you're ever going to see um check out some hong kong horror films because those things are wild (laughs) i will take your word for it buddy (laughs) all right where are you bringing us next with number five we're staying with chow young fat right yeah we're staying with chow young fat for this one but um and one we've talked about before yeah number five we got a better tomorrow from 1986 uh this is john woo's breakout film um he made several films before this but this is a film that uh introduces his not only his uh action style of filmmaking but it also his first collaboration with chow yun fat and it really uh not kung fu out of its uh precious spot in the in you know in the, in the box office market um and supplanted it with his style of of uh, what is called heroic bloodshed films which is uh hyper violent shootout movies um that deal with uh honor and loyalty amongst thieves or cops or uh, you know, very, very hyper masculine films 
Um, but the interesting thing about this movie is that uh, while it is an action film, it is the first film on this list um, to start dealing with political ideas that are infused into um, the sensational style of Hong Kong movies. Um, this is starting to criticize the capitalist society, um, but also kind of this lingering anxiety about what is going to happen if we don't have any money or a way out of Hong Kong with uh, the handover coming very soon. Um, it was signed into, um, I'm not sure how you would say it, but it was signed between the Chinese and the and the British in 1984 that the handover would effectively go through uh, without a hitch in 1997. And so these late 80s films start to address this concern and A Better Tomorrow starts to, to uh, deal with like desperate characters trying to find their lot in life before the handover starts. And so um, this is a very pivotal film for Hong Kong cinema because it definitely, it changes not only the attitude of the, of the cinema, but it starts to get into the like really dark um, urban stories. Yeah, when we talked about it last time, you know, I brought up the fact that like the um, Chow Young Fat lighting a cigarette by burning a hundred dollar bill and yes. lighting it with a hundred dollar bill, you know, it's mm -hmm. such an iconic image that you would light a cigarette with a hundred dollar bill that's on fire. Like you're saying, money is nothing to me. Or you're saying, Western capitalism, what do I care? <laughs> you're like, yeah. like, there's so much you could take mm -hmm. just from that, from that image. And you're right. Like, Hong Kong citizens are hyper aware at this point that the handover is coming. Uh, and I don't find it surprising at all that you start to see that picked up in film. You know, you move away from the, the traditional Kung Fu cinema and you start to get into more of like an urban lifestyle of like, okay, what's going on? What is going to go on? And like people are thinking and there's a lot of question marks. Um, yeah, I like this one a lot too. But I don't want to dive too, too much into it because I know we have a couple of your choices coming up that we'll definitely dive into it even more with the handover. Oh, yeah. So what do you got coming in at number four? Yeah, number four, switching gears a little bit uh, into a film called Peking Opera Blues from 1986. Uh, this is a big crowd-pleasing movie. Um, it mixes a bunch of genres. It's just like a big blockbuster kind of film. It's a period piece, but it's also a drama, uh, excuse me, it's also a comedy and an espionage action drama uh, set in the early 1900s. Um, and it's about the daughter of a general, a grifter, and the daughter of a Peking opera um, director who are kind of trapped in this espionage plot to get some papers uh from the general uh and get it over to the to the rebels so that um they can overthrow the government but uh we're on the cusp of uh of the revolution here in china and it's just this uh, comedy of manners a little bit but it's also uh talking about the politics of chinese art or how women can't participate in that uh, but it's got a great comedy um you know, situational comedy and then the stellar action, you know, all, all at the same time. Um, and so, yeah, this is a hard movie to find, but if you're looking for like a movie that is, uh, you know, akin to like some of our American blockbusters that just check off every entertainment box you can imagine, um, this, this is a great pick. I don't find it surprising at all too at the time because of the conversation we just had, but also in mm -hmm. 1986, you have a film that is dealing with China right at the cusp of the civil war and the civil war that leads into and sparks the communist revolution that leads to what China is today. And, and I really, I haven't seen this one, but I like this trailer for so many different reasons. Again, like the cinematography and the colors are great, but also like you could tell this isn't 
your stereotypical kung fu film. It's not your stereotypical triad gangster film or a cop film or anything like that. It's, but it brings in the Chinese opera, which is world famous for for lo-fi listeners out there who don't know, like the Chinese opera and the Peking opera are extremely well known and have been known for so long. So to see an HK film bring that in and kind of celebrate it, I think it's really cool because I think a lot of Western audiences and US audiences, when they think HK cinema or Chinese cinema, they think, you know, Bruce Lee, Kung Fu, or Chow Young Fat, and um, gangster or cop films, and they don't necessarily think about Chinese opera and or, or Peking opera. So I like this pick. I liked it a whole lot. Well done. Well done. <laughs> well, what you got coming in for number three? With yeah, us? number going three. a little bit different again, huh? Yeah, uh, slightly. Um, this is City on Fire from 1987. Um, I think this film is very akin to A Better Tomorrow, and that it's a, it's a big Chow Young Fat. Uh, star vehicle but this is a much darker film um, it's a cops and robbers film about a cop that goes undercover to try to stop this diamond heist crew uh, but while it is a great action film what it's really about is how callous the police are in hong kong and how expendable chai and fat's character is um, and it explores how desperate the diamond heist uh, criminals are so the criminal crew are to make you know, a quick buck and, you know, to, to find their prosperity, because uh, time is running out before um, their, you know, their freedoms are going to be are given up. And so they're, what options do they have in this, in this, uh, this is the society that feels like it's under a lot of pressure. Um, it's really famous in the West, because uh, the like last quarter of this film um, was basically lifted and is the entirety of Reservoir Dogs. Um, but it's so much more than that. It's got so many layers that to exploring, um, you know, the pressure cooker of this this uh, society. That uh, this is this is just a masterpiece of 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 political cinema. I dig this one a whole lot, and this and this is I think your third Chow Young Fat movie, and it really got me to start thinking. Like I think he's a wonderful actor. I think he's very mm-hmm. symbolic for the movement, and it made me want to ask you. Would you say that in, in some ways he's kind of like one of the HK cinema actors there are, or, or like maybe at the, the, like, I don't know, what am I trying to say? Like internationally, when people think of HK cinema, do you attribute Chow Young-Fat as being an actor who helped bring HK cinema to the international audience? Yeah, he's definitely one of them, like for his for his time period, you know, before him, it was you know, Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan and Gordon Liu and some other action film or action stars. But I think with him, it's like, the even though he's in some slight action films, he's not like a, he's not a action star first and an actor second. He's an actor first. And so he's one of the first like real actors from Hong Kong to break into the American audience or the international audience. Um, but yeah, like I said earlier, during this time, he was making so many films that he is just in all of these, like you can make a top 10 greatest hits of 80s films from Hong Kong and he would, and you could just do 10 Chow and fat films because he was in so many of them. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he's undeniably one of the great actors from Hong Kong. 
Yeah, that's what I kind of figured. And, and you know, you maybe think like people are always saying, oh, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson's the hardest working person in, in Hollywood. And I'm like, really? I was like, did he ever make 12 movies in one year? <laughs> like, I don't know about that. Yeah, um, they're all anyway, anyway, anyway. like, yeah, he's he, if you watch enough giant fat films, you could see films where he is absolutely goofy in them. Um, but if you only know him from like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you think he's this, you know, the stately uh, performer. But yeah, he's got a, a very dynamic range. Yes, uh, to that effect, I always make you think of a, a bulletproof monk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course, that's like an American-made movie, but still, yes. like, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, what you got for us at number two? Yeah, number two is Chunking Express. We're getting into the 90s here. It came out in 94. Um, and yeah, this is a, a, a great romantic comedy from uh, Wong Kar Wai, uh, perhaps the most romantic filmmaker to ever live. Uh, it's a story of two lonely cops and the women that are complicating their lives. Um, but it, it's just a addictively fun film. Um, yet it does have some underlying um, depictions of of the loneliness of Hong Kong life and the des- again like the desperate living of uh, drug smuggling or or trying to find yourself in your profession or what's the point of your life um, and kind of walking through the city of you know six million people live in this city and just you know the disconnect uh, that exists in this place and. Um, these four characters these is it's split into two stories and so two two and two of the characters but um just how difficult it is to connect even romantically uh with someone who's right in front of you um it's got a hell of a lot of style uh one car away has a completely different style than any other film on this list um and so it's it's action is very different and the editing is very different it's much more influenced by european cinema um but yeah this is a uh, kind of a, a, a we're, we're the cinema took a more of an art house international, internationally praised um, step in that direction. Um, but yeah, I would highly recommend this film. It looked fantastic. And it, it did make me think of, I hadn't seen it, but it made me think of the romance. And it also made me think, you know, tying it into like a cop or a gangster film, um, mm-hmm. but in a completely different kind of way. And it, I definitely got the vibe of like art house film. And it was it just me or... Did the trailer? Did they do a Chinese version of the cranberries? Um, yes, yes, there is I a, thought yeah, so, yeah, and I yeah. was like, "Wow, that was amazing!" Like, yes, I, I mean, granted, I'm already a cranberries fan, but like a Chinese cover of it, it sounded completely incredible. Um, yeah, one of the stars of this film um, is a canto pop star, and so she does a cover of it. I believe the song is "Dreams" by the Cranberries, and she does the the Cantonese cover of it. Oh yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing, yeah. and and one of the actors I know really well from other films. I think I, oh, yeah. I, I didn't have time to look it up, but I yeah, think t- either like t- yeah, Tony Long is in this film. Uh, was it which, House he, of the Flying Dragons or he's in Hero? Or, um, oh, Hero, that was in, it. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember if he's in House of Flying Daggers, but he's in this. He's in In the Mood for Love. He's in Infernal Affairs, uh, but he was also in Chang Chi. Um, he was he played Chang Chi's father. Uh, oh yeah, right, up. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this one, this one looked incredible. Like for real, it's on my side list of ones to go back and watch. Oh just yeah, because yeah. It, it gave such a distinctly different feel mm-hmm. of of where of the journey you've really taken us on. Because for for listeners, like you don't have it in front of you, but there's a time progression of every single one of these movies that Gregory Day's been leading us on. And you know, going back all the way to you know what was the um 
Number 10, Come Drank With We was 1966. Mm -hmm. Then the next one, 1972, then 1984, then 85, then 86, 86, 87, 80, um, 94, you know? And it's like, these are in a chronological order and it's just kind of, you can feel whenever you know they're in chronological order and then you, you think about what all of these are about. Like there's a, a story, a meta story going on here, um, talking about HK cinema that I think, Let's move on to your number one, and then we can really dive into the, what that story is. Um, yeah, number one is a film that I, I you know, obviously picked it to be number one because this is um, from the year 1997, which is the year of the handover. Uh, it's called Made in Hong Kong. And this is like one of the first truly independent, independently made films um, that come out of Hong Kong. And it, of course, is is about disaffected youth and criminal life in Hong Kong and the aimlessness of life um, in this city as it changes from this westernized democratic society being incorporated into um, China. And so um, this is a film that has a lot of influence from the new wave. Like you could see like a film like 400 Blows um, definitely influencing, influencing this film of like talking about where is our society right now and what do the, what do young people have to look forward to? Um, and so it's just, you know, it's, a uh, it's not very plot driven. So it's, it's very situationally driven as these characters are trying to, uh, make sense of their lives and make money and survive, um, in this city with, uh, whether, whether, uh, features in question. So, um, I had to put it here because this is it. This is the end of Hong Kong cinema. Um, that's not to say that there is more, you know, there, there, there aren't movies made in Kong, Hong Kong after that, but Hong Kong ceases to be its own identity. It's now Chinese after that. And so this is where I wanted the list to end. Um, we could talk about other great films that have come out of there um, post this, but it's no longer, you know, there's no longer a, a, a regional cinema. And so uh, this is a great place to end it. This one is one that I'm going to check out. Made in Hong Kong, 1997. I'd never heard about this, but the name alone and it being that year. Also, I would like to know like, if it is a, a word, one for one word translation in Chinese, mm -hmm. like that'd be kind of curious. Um, yeah. But, you know, this, this trailer drew me in so much and it, it has a totally different feel from all of the other films, you know? I got way more of a, a modern sense in, of like apprehension mm -hmm. and, you know, drugs and alcohol and sex and crime and all mixed into a film and no Kung Fu, no buddy cop movie. It was just like, it felt like it was a tale of people on the cusp of society changing. And it, it was, you know, in 1997, the UK ended colonization in Hong Kong and handed Hong Kong over to China. And this movie comes out that same year and it's not by chance. Like this is a major narrative about the, where everyone going, where everyone in the city was gonna go moving forward. Um, I'm definitely gonna look into this movie. Uh, Cause I think you're right. There are definitely films that come later that are produced in mm -hmm. Hong Kong, shot in Hong Kong, everything financed in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. But every last one of them now is made following Beijing, China, Communist Party laws and rules. And that's limiting what you can speak about, what you can talk about, what you can film about in a huge kind of way. Yeah. Um, 
So, so maybe one day we have a talk about, maybe not a whole top 10 list, but just like a, a little special episode about the difference between HK cinema post and pre the handover and how it changed one day. That'd be kind of yeah, interesting. Yeah. But there you go. That's Gregory Day's top 10 HK cinema list. And, you know, got a few questions for you, like we always do. And, and first, I, I want to start off with, you know, why you picked this list. And it made me think, you know, your first list ever on the show um, over a year ago now was uh, introduction to East Asian cinema. And you did have some HK film in it. But why did you decide you wanted to do an entire list about HK cinema this time? Yeah, I feel like we've talked about, you know, here and there over the course of uh, me being on this show, which thank you for always having me. Um, of course. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I felt like it was time to kind of explain why I love this this uh, regional cinema so much um, and spotlight like an introduction to it. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to do this list to kind of talk about this exciting um, cinema and you know different places around the world they have flavors to their cinema you know some of them are more artsier some of them are more exploitative or some of them uh, are, are much more driven by box office but something about Hong Kong cinema it's just the most spectacular kind of filmmaking on the on the planet like th these films were go for broke everything about them is just entertainment value you know in every single scene. Um, some of the things don't translate well to, you know, American audiences, like their humor, I don't think 100% translates, but, or, or the way that tonal shifts happen in their films between humor and action or drama. Um, but the more you watch them, the more you can kind of understand the language that they're using, but uh, it's just sensational cinema, you know, in every single one of them, whether it's a drama or like, like Chunking Express, where it's got this fantastic style or Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, where it's just got you know, these, the colors and the action. And so they're always um, putting 110% into every aspect of their films. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a, you know, a, a great cinema. And so that's why I wanted to come on here and talk about it. All good stuff, all good stuff. So I guess if there were to be a top 10 list of your favorite movie genres, this would be number one? <laughs> As a genre, no. I mean, I wouldn't consider it a genre. Um, but I think okay, if, it, okay. if I did something like, uh, I mean, but it, it's, it's, it could almost be, almost be considered that, but I don't know if it would be. Oh, I got you. Like a close, movement. Yeah. yeah a movement okay. or a regional cinema. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, did you, uh, did you have any runners up? You want to give a quick little shout out to show some love? Cause 10, Absolutely. like you said, you could do a 10 of like just Chow Young fat. So, I mean, I imagine you've got <laughs> some other love you want to shout out. Yeah, absolutely. These are a couple of films I couldn't fit in here because they felt a little redundant um, to put it in. But I have two 80s picks, 80s picks that are phenomenal. Uh, Tiger Cage 2, which is a very young Donnie Yen flick that is just bonkers uh, action from the moment go to the time that the uh, credits hits. Um, you don't need to see Tiger Cage 1 um, to enjoy this film because they <laughs> they are, are there's a series called Tiger Cage, but they don't really have anything to do with each other. I don't know if it's a box office ploy or whatever, but uh, but this is a film directed by Yin Wu Ping, who, of course, we all know from being the choreographer on Kill Bill and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, and so that guy never made a disappointing action scene in his life. And so this is a great one. Um, but also, Yes, Madam, which is also from the 80s, which is Michelle Yeoh's first film. Um, and it's, it stars her and Cynthia Rothrock as two tough cops in Hong Kong. And it's just got stellar action um, and an unbelievable climax that uh, if even if you're not into these kinds of films, but you love action movies, you just go watch the end of Yes, Madam on YouTube. You're going to be blown away. So 
those two films just insanity um, in the action genre. I dig it. I dig it. I, especially Michelle Yeoh. She's one of my favorite actresses yeah. out of there. Um, what a great actress. And still working today, still in stuff all the time that yeah. you see regularly. Everywhere, um, everything, everywhere, all I want just came out this year. Great movie. Yeah, I want to see that one. I had some people recommend it a lot. Um, and she was also in Shang-Chi. Um, yeah. So, mm -hmm. I mean, still like all over the place. Yeah. And for my next question, you kind of already answered it. So, I'm going to change it up and and some mm -hmm. something i think that's been missing for me from your mm -hmm. list mm -hmm. and the conversation gently my friend no oh, yeah. like like now granted like i don't like i said i don't really know a whole whole lot mm -hmm. about the hk cinema um, movement like you do or anything but mm -hmm. especially from like a u.s perspective jet lee was one of the people who broke into the u.s big um, and like the, the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, like his films started hitting. And, you know, you had things like um, Romeo Must Die or um, The Defender and, and several other ones that he just started mm -hmm. hitting big. In. And in like Lethal Weapon 4, he was in that. Yeah. I haven't heard you talk about any of his movies. Yeah. So I'm curious, is mm -hmm. Jet Li just known to Western audiences and and like where does he fit into the the Hong Kong movement in comparison to like some of the other films and actors that we've been talking about? Yeah, yeah. no, no, he's a huge um, star in Hong Kong before he came to America. I think uh, Lethal Weapon might have been his first American movie, uh, but he was in quite a few films, especially the uh, Once Upon a Time in China movies um, that that were in the in the mid nineties. But full disclosure, I think I do have some blind spots for him and Donnie Yen. There's two two couple guys that I need to really uh, beef up my knowledge on. But yeah, no. Uh, to, to answer your, your question, he was definitely a big star in Hong Kong before coming to America. Gotcha, gotcha. And I, I kind of I kind of feel like Donnie Yen too. He's another um, HK actor that I feel branched out into a Western audience pretty uh, pretty early on, and that's pretty well known. But I was just curious because like you don't hear as much about either mm -hmm. of them. Um, now the Once Upon a Time trilogy, I think it is that Jet Li did. Uh, did I saw the first one? I didn't see the second two. And what was Donnie Yen? He did the ones where was he like the teacher of Bruce Lee in the movies? Yeah, um, um, yeah. More recently, I think in the two thousands, he did the series of films about Ip Man. That's uh, what I yeah. was thinking of. Yes. Yeah. 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 So yeah, big people, the world, uh, really well known. Um, but I wasn't, uh, I didn't know how far back their careers went. You know, I kind of feel mm -hmm. like they're more modern than your Chow Young Fat or your Jackie Chan. You know, on a weird side note, I had noticed that um, on one of the streaming platforms, Jackie Chan had this cartoon series <laughs> yeah. called Jackie Chan Adventures. Mm -hmm. And it's like Indiana Jones meets uh, Jackie Chan. And yeah. I watched a few episodes. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Anyway, so I'm trying to think. Now let's, let's wrap it down to the questions we always get back to, my friends. And I feel one of them you kind of already answered, but you can maybe home in on a little bit or you can focus mm -hmm. on the second one. It's up to you. But you know, we go over these lists and, and talk about all these different movies, but I always want to know, you know, why is this list important to you and why should other people view this list as important as well? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I did talk about why this, this is important to me because I just absolutely love these these films that so many people put so much effort into making and they make them to be the, the best possible film they can make, um, whether it's through the action or the comedy. Um, but these people put a lot of hard work in um, 
And I think action cinema wouldn't be what it is today uh, around the world if it wasn't for this little area, um, you know, in Asia where they just revolutionized everything about the action cinema. Um, but I think what people should watch them is because there's these films aren't being made anymore. Like you go see any action film um, today and now that you're going to get good fight choreography or you're going to get a CGI mess fest um, that's just hard on the eyes to watch. But if you go back and you watch these films, it's like watching, you know, the, you know, the Ramones after listening to um, a lot of pop punk and you're just seeing like where these things were created. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is, it's a lost cinema, uh, obviously because of, of uh, you know, geopolitical reasons, but I think it's got a lot of characteristics in it that uh, have been lost to time and deserve to be remembered. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's, it's really less than 30 years mm -hmm. that things have changed so drastically. Uh, so I feel like if we don't keep it alive now, then what, what hope is there in the future to keep it alive, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, superb stuff right there, my friend. But before we let you go, why don't you tell all the good listeners what you have going on lately and uh, where can they find you on the interwebs? Yeah, yeah. You can find me on uh, bad.daysubstack.com or baddaysubstack.com, excuse me, um, to check out my blog, Hipsville AD over there, taking a little hiatus after Halloween, but I'll uh, be back soon enough. And then you can find me Hipsville AD on Instagram. Well, I'll be interested to see what you're getting into post-Halloween, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, my friend, for coming on, as yeah, always. Yeah, for having me. And that's Hipville AD's top 10 list. Check out our friend Gregory Day online. Follow him everywhere, people. And interested in writing in the show? Check us out on Instagram, myself on LinkedIn. Definitely check out lofipolyside.com. And always remember that lofipolyside is more than just me. It's the we that we be. Talk to you soon, lofi listeners. Pickering and Day, signing off. Goodbye, folks.